Let's talk about Jewish marriage. Mazel tov. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Marriage is the basic relationship between a man and a woman. In the Garden of Eden story, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, after God creates Eve, Adam rhapsodizes about the woman. There, the Torah states, Hence a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, so that they become one flesh. Not only is marriage preferred, it is the natural state of affairs. On this episode, we are only discussing a marriage between a Jewish man and a Jewish woman. In the next few episodes of Torah for Christians, we will examine interfaith marriage as well as homosexual, same-sex marriages, and conversion. But we cannot talk about these topics until we understand the basic ideas about Jewish marriage. Jewish thought tells us that there are two reasons for marriage. One is obvious, procreation. The other reason is for sexual pleasure. Historically, Jewish marriages were arranged. While this sounds odd to today's ear, it was completely normal in medieval times. Jews in Europe and the Middle East often lived in small, isolated villages. The normal lifespan of a human being in the Middle Ages was only about 30. Labor was the most dangerous activity a woman could endure. Taken together, the closeness of Jewish villages and the relatively short lifespan of human beings combined to push Jewish parents to arrange marriages for their children. There simply was no time for young Jewish men and women to date. They had to marry young and start having children immediately afterwards. In those days, the father of a Jewish boy and the father of a Jewish girl would make an agreement when the kids were about 13 years old. If you recall, 13 was the age of bar mitzvah, when a boy takes on adult responsibilities in the Jewish community. The fathers would come together in the presence of witnesses and strike a deal. There would then be a formal engagement called in Hebrew a rusin. Then the kids would go back to their respective homes until they were about 15 or 16, when they were well into puberty and the girl could safely become pregnant. Also, this gave the father of the boy enough time to pay the terms of the dowry, called in Hebrew the ketubah, the contents of which the wife would keep in the unfortunate event of a divorce. At that time, there would be a formal marriage called in Hebrew Nisuin. Following the ceremony, the couple would consummate their marriage and live together as husband and wife. One of the goals of such early marriage was for the wife to begin to bear children while she was young, most fertile, and relatively healthy. Having children so young increased the odds that she would be able to raise those who survived birth in early childhood and live long enough to see them married as well. For her husband, he was young enough to begin to work and provide for his family. 
We must interject here that Jewish law clearly states that a woman cannot be married against her will. This was another innovation designed to protect a young woman from an unwanted or perhaps dangerous relationship. This concept originated in the story of Rebecca agreeing to leave for Canaan to marry Isaac. Later, the Mishnah codified this principle in the very first chapter of Kiddushin, the laws of marriage. As these customs began to clash with modernity, with its longer lifespans and better health, Jews began to echo changing societal trends, even in the modern Orthodox communities. Instead of being matched for marriage, Jews began to date other Jews to find the, quote, perfect match. The age of marriage was pushed back into the 20s, changing the entire dynamic. Now, most Jews waited until they finished at least their undergraduate degrees before getting married, sometimes even later. Also, the two ceremonies, Erusin, the engagement, and Nisuin, the marriage, were combined into one marriage ceremony called in Hebrew Kiddushin, which means holiness or separateness. Before exploring the ceremony, let's spend a minute talking about the word Kiddushin. It provides an insight into the Jewish concept of marriage. Kiddushin is from the Hebrew word Kadosh, which we usually translate as holy. Kadosh is also the root of Kiddush, the blessing over wine, Kaddish, a mourner's prayer, and many other terms. But halakhically, kuf dalid shin means to separate. In terms of kiddushin, this means that a man and woman separate themselves from the community and are beholden only to each other and to God. Through kiddushin, they declare that they will be intimate only with each other and not seek or receive sexual pleasure from anyone else. Following our break, we will look at Erusin and Nisuin in more detail. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of the Jewish view of marriage, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please remember to review and rate this episode on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you are using. Also, please go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. We have covered a lot of material so far, and I look forward to what is to come. The Zohar the classic text of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, tells an amazing story, one that I often use when officiating at a Jewish wedding. God takes a soul and splits it in half. God puts one half of the soul into a baby boy, the other half in a baby girl. The children spend their formative years looking for their lost half. When they unite, it is as if the two half souls have combined once again to create one common soul. This is what is meant when we recite the adage, no man without a woman, no woman without a man, and neither without the Shekhinah, God's indwelling presence. To set the stage again, 
The Kiddushin marriage ceremony is really two rituals combined into one. The engagement, Eurusin, and the actual marriage, Nisuin. At the end of Nisuin, the two halves of the soul have joined back together to become one, one husband and wife. Let's look at each of these ceremonies in turn. Prior to the wedding, the bride and groom often go to the mikvah. The mikvah is a ritual bath. The water must come from either a flowing stream or from rain. Unless you live on a coast or near a lake, most mikvah oat have a mix of filtered rain and tap water. The bride or groom remove all clothing, makeup, jewelry, and piercings prior to immersion. The mikvah is not like a regular bath or shower. Instead of cleaning the body, the mikvah cleans the soul. Many Jews also fast on their wedding day. This fast, as it does on Yom Kippur, symbolizes the physical death of the body and its rebirth as a purified soul. Following the ceremony, when the new bride and groom break their fast together, they reemerge as one. Their souls have combined. All streams of Judaism follow the same outline of the marriage ceremony with little variation. The ceremony is just too beautiful to change drastically. Just prior to the wedding ceremony, the bride and groom sign the ketubah, the Jewish wedding document. A traditional ketubah is like a prenuptial agreement. It details the dowry that the bride will receive and states that she will keep the dowry in case of divorce. The more liberal traditions have replaced the traditional ketubah with a statement of mutual love, doing away with the dowry specifics. Tradition calls for the bride and groom to sign the ketubah together in the presence of witnesses and the rabbi. Although in modern American weddings, the rabbi and witnesses often travel from room to room so that the bride and groom do not see each other prior to the service. The rabbi also signs the state marriage license at this time as well. Jews do the usual procession to begin the wedding ceremony. We have adopted many American customs, such as a best man and maid of honor. The music is often classical or contemporary pop, or especially Jewish music appropriate for a wedding, such as lyrics taken from the Song of Songs. When the groom and later the bride enter, both of their parents usually escort them. This is different from many Christian traditions, but it emphasizes the importance of family and the role that both parents play in their upbringing. Customarily, the groom enters first. His bride is the last to enter the room. Many weddings take place in a synagogue sanctuary, although it is preferable to hold the ceremony outdoors under the stars. Of course, many Jewish weddings take place in a hotel ballroom or even in a private home. There is no hard and fast rule. When the bride reaches the groom, she customarily circles the groom seven times. The number seven is a magical number in Judaism. Seven days of creation, seven days of the week, etc. Circling symbolizes possession. So today, many non-Orthodox couples choose to modify this custom. The bride may circle her groom three times, then the groom circles the bride three times, and then they do the final circle together. Following the circling, the couple enters the chuppah, a wedding canopy that symbolizes the Jewish home that the couple will build together. It is also customary 
that the parents stand with them and the rabbi during the service. The rabbi welcomes the couple under the chuppah and recites a few introductory prayers and readings. This is the start of Erusin, the formal engagement ceremony. The highlight of Erusin is an exchange of rings. The groom is expected to give his bride a gold ring, unbroken and without stones. The solid gold ring symbolizes the couple's unbroken love. The lack of stones shows that all are equal under God's eye. In times past, the community would provide a ring, which the groom would obtain from the town leaders. He would place this ring on the bride's right index finger. One week following the wedding, he would return the ring to the community chest. Today, the bride often places a ring on her groom's finger as well. While not mandatory, this ring is also a sign of marriage and of the equality between husband and wife. Each partner recites a blessing in Hebrew and English, which goes like this. Behold, you are set apart or betrothed or made holy to me with this ring, according to the faith of Moses and Israel. Following the exchange of rings, Erusin is completed after the rabbi leads the couple in a kiddush, the blessing over the wine. The groom or maid of honor pulls back her veil and gives the bride a sip of wine. Then he lowers the veil again. Vows in a Jewish wedding are optional, although frequently done. Following Erusin, the rabbi continues to the official marriage section of the service called Nisuin. There are two highlights to Nisuin, the Sheva Brachot and the reading of the Ketubah. Let's discuss each of them. Sheva Brachot means the seven blessings. Again, note the number seven in this ritual. The Sheva Brachot originated in the Talmud when the rabbis would each offer a blessing at the wedding of a colleague's son. The Sheva Brachot is then a greatest hits of the rabbinic blessings. But the Sheva Brachot also act as a metaphorical funnel. The first blessing is another kiddush, a blessing over the wine. Then the blessings celebrate the creation of the universe and then of humankind. Then the blessings narrow to a celebration of the creation of the Jewish people. Finally, the blessings focus on the creation of this particular man and woman as bride and groom. Then the last blessing infers that Jerusalem personified is celebrating this blessed event. The maid of honor then pulls back the bride's veil so that she can have a sip of the wine. The veil pulled back is pulled back for the remainder of the service. Following the Sheva Brachot, the rabbi reads the Ketubah, the Jewish marriage document. Depending on the stream of Judaism that the couple follows, the rabbi may read the entire Ketubah or a portion of it in its original Aramaic or even a portion of the Ketubah in English translation. The service is almost over. After the Ketubah, the rabbi blesses the couple and declares them husband and wife according to the state and according to God. The final step of a Jewish wedding ceremony is the breaking of the glass. If anyone knows anything about Jewish weddings, it is that the groom breaks this glass with the heel of his foot. There are multiple reasons for this custom, but let me give you just three of them. One, the breaking of the glass is a remembrance of the destruction of the temple. Into every happy occasion, a bit of sadness must enter. 
I don't agree with this as a wedding should be a time of unmitigated joy. Two, let this be the last shattering moment of your life. This is better, but it's unrealistic as conflict and loss inevitably occur, even in the best of marriages. Three, believe it or not, this third reason is correct, but not so great for under the chuppah. I tell the couple this prior to the wedding. Like the general population, Jews in the medieval era were quite superstitious. They believed that demons and evil spirits surrounded the chuppah during a wedding ceremony. When the groom breaks a glass, these evil characters scatter in shock. During this time, the bride and groom can safely escape. You may think that the bride and groom leave the chuppah and form a receiving line. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Instead, the couple adjourns to a side room for yichud, union. This is not a sexual union. That comes later. The bride and groom break their fast and enjoy a few private minutes together before greeting their guests. Traditionally, the couple eat hard-boiled eggs, a symbol of both life and fertility, as well as drinking some water. Since we know that the bride and groom often do not get to eat much during their reception, this is a chance for them to get some nourishment. Wedding receptions are standard fare as well. It was customary for the bride's parents to invite the entire village to the ceremony and reception. This worked well in a tight-knit small village. Today, though, when there are tens of thousands of Jews in many cities, this is impractical. So there is always a guest list. The type of reception depends upon the personal wishes of the families and the ability to pay. A lavish reception is not required. And except for a kiddush, a motzi, the blessing over the bread, and a final blessing after the meal, there are no other Jewish requirements. There might be some dancing, but that's about it. Following the reception, the couple heads out for bia, the consummation of the marriage. Traditionally, this was the first time that both bride and groom had sex. Today, however, in non-Orthodox communities, and even among some Orthodox, virginity is not assumed. Still, this is a special moment in the life of the new couple. Liberal Jews often go on a honeymoon, either immediately following the wedding or at a time of their convenience. In traditional circles, though, friends and family celebrate the wedding with, par with parties called Sheva Brachot. For the next seven days, the couple celebrates their marriage and the Sheva Brachot are included as part of the blessing after the meal. As God said, it is not good for man to be alone. In Jewish tradition, marriage is the natural state for adults. We celebrate this blessed event with tremendous joy. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please remember to rate and review this and previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other streaming services. You can also like us on Facebook. Next week, we will discuss two situations that complicate the traditional Jewish marriage interfaith marriages, and LGBTQ plus marriages. It promises to be quite interesting. Have a wonderful week, and remember, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together as one. Till we meet again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this 
is Torah for Christians.